Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Judge Me by My Cover. Today, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Bradley Limer. We're going to talk about some of the things that's been going on in the tech space, about data, about future of technology, about the world we live in, and、um, we're going to speak a little bit about the book New Dark Age by James Brido. Yeah, the the interesting thing about this book、uh, is that it starts out with references to the West Wing,、uh, and so any book that、uh, sort of starts there. But it was interesting because of an exchange exchange between、uh, President Bartlett and, and Leo、uh, in the Oval Office about connectivity, because you know Leo was complaining that wow, you know something was going on and he should have known, and Bartlett says, well, you know, there's this amazing thing that's inside your pocket,、uh, and it and it has this ability for you to you know use it to communicate to people. And this was sort of, you know, pre-smartphone、uh, in terms of when that episode came out. So, I think a lot of what we'll probably talk about today is that sort of ubiquitous connectivity and what all that data means. Am I going to be the only dork who said I have not watched The West Wing? Oh, never admit that. <laughs> Now you have to watch it. Such an、yeah. amazing series. I admit that in, in, on air too.、Um, but let, let's go back to to some of the themes that we've been seeing both on news as well as in our social circles. It's around technology. What is it that we want technology to do for us? And what is going on in our space when we see the likes of Google and Apple and Facebook and all of these big tech companies? There's a lot of talk in DC,、um, as well as in, in the EU, actually,、um, about the need to break up the big tech because they own too much、uh, from a data perspective. Because of the fact that they're becoming monopoly, and monopoly not in the sense that we traditionally think of, for example, automobile industry monopoly or、um, telecommunications company monopoly. Right? All of these companies, if you look at what they do, for example, Amazon, they started out as A e-commerce company that sells books, and then from that evolved to selling more things, and then from that evolved to、um, owning physical stores,、um, doing payment infrastructure,、uh, doing Amazon Music, and all of that. Many, many, I would say, verticals of our lives that evolves around companies such as Amazon and Apple, and. In by itself, within each category, I wouldn't call them as a monopoly. But if we take a step back and look at everything that they do and how much they know about our lives and how much they could potentially control our lives, such as you know, an article that was written by Professor Scott Galloway recently, that he is comparing the current economic landscape with all these big companies、um, with Star Wars. Um, where that they have potential to basically kill off the competitors, the startups such as Slack and Spotify, and dominate our world. Well, I mean, how aren't they already sort of doing that?、Um, there's an article I think that Richard Turin had recently shared、um, with his network that was saying that within the next five to six years, six companies, six platforms globally are going to control about thirty percent of commerce. Now think about that.、Um, you know, when when the internet was first established, and when the original sort of combination of supercomputers through the '40s, '50s, '60s, '70s, and beyond sort of became what DARPA and others created, which is the internet today. This idea that information was going to be free and shared, and going to sort of in, inhabit new ways of our life, but enrich it,、um, quickly became this. 
sort of forced to monetize it. Um, so how is it that the information age has made the world more sort of incomprehensible and our ability to understand everything that's used every single day uh, has completely changed. So this, this book is interesting to kind of dive into that a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, there's that saying, right? If you're not paying for it, then you're the product. And so, you know, if you think about our activities and our interaction on the, in the digital world, right? Every likes that we do on Twitter, every click that we do, on Facebook, every comment that we post on various forms of Instagram and, and, and what have you. And all of these little pieces of nuggets in it by itself seems like it's a harmless piece of information, right? Who cares if they know where I go for lunch and who cares if, you know, I post something about something that I like, something that I just bought. But what happens if we look at for example, what happened in the last election, or even now, all of these seemingly harmless and, and micro piece data of our lives, when you put them all together, it becomes a much fuller picture of how people behave in the society and how we all are, and we all have a different profile of us. And that's where data can get exploited. Yeah, there was... Um a Netflix um, documentary called The Great Hack, which was about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook that was out pretty recently. And the sheer amount of data that was collected on the American electorate. And again, I think there's dozens of examples of um, economies and elections that Cambridge Analytica and other companies have sort of manipulated. That's, you know, really the, the key understanding, I think, of the last maybe 10 or 15 years around these companies is the sheer amount of data that's being collected, the way it's being used, it's going into sort of a black box. Um, Bridal writes, he says, over the last century, technological acceleration has transformed our planet, our societies, and ourselves. But it has failed to transform our understanding of these things. And I think, you know, his argument is, is that we're so embedded in technological systems every moment of every day, but we don't understand what they do we don't understand sort of the systems that we're part of. Um, he talks about it in, in the form of code spaces that, you know, everywhere we are physically and digitally is somehow either involved in code that has been written or some, somehow involved in something that has been sort of um, appended by something that has been written that's running on a server uh, sort of anonymously to us. And so um, there, there's a lot of things to really think about in this book. I agree. And it's, um, it, it reminds me of another example that we use quite often, right? When we're talking about algorithms and machines that are in the background influencing our day-to-day -day activities. Think about, the music that we listen to, right? The recommendations that's made by e-commerce giants on what we should buy and what we shouldn't buy, what might be interesting to us. Um, there was a recent uh, article that talked about how Amazon has manipulated its algorithms to present its own products first before the others. So now think about the implication of you go on online and you know you want to 
let's say you get a birthday present, right? And what you see and what get presented, typically that's what people will end up buying, right? Because no one wants to search for like 30, 40 minutes for something. Um, and how the experience, if let's say transfer to a voice commerce, how much that will actually even more greatly impact the purchasing power um, of that particular company in question and how different that interaction is compared to, let's say, if we go to a physical store and browse down the aisles. I think that's one of the reasons why I love going to bookstores is, you know, you will always end up finding something that you didn't expect, something that is different than, quote unquote, what you typically would like to see. Well, it's interesting. I mean, he talks about how, you know, reading a book and listening to music and the way we research, the way we search for things in general have been sort of changed by the way we think about technology. And, you know, if you, you think about looking for a book or you think about, you know, sort of listening to that next piece of music, how many times have it sort of been augmented by what we see as a recommendation engine or your friends are listening to or, you know, if you like, you should also like. And it's, it's taken a lot of that serendipity out of, um, again, going down that aisle. And it's not like, you know, going into a grocery store hasn't been physically manipulated, right? There's a reason why you see frozen things in the middle and you see fresh items on, on the sides and you see milk in the back. It's because they're manipulating us to go a certain way in the store. And those type of things have been happening since the beginning of grocery stores um, in order for us to put more in our shopping cart. This is why shopping carts are larger. This is why, you know, they've done everything they can to put food at ready to eat in, in supermarkets. So it's not like our physical environment has not been sort of altered um, to affect the way that we buy or the way that we think about what we need. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's a little different when you're walking physically in a store versus shopping online or searching. Um, there's, something that we just don't know uh, about the algorithms that are making these suggestions and how this has transformed our lives and will impact us going forward is really, again, at sort of the heart of this book is to understand where we're headed as a society when every single thing that we could possibly do has a technological component to it. I agree. Um, I think back for my daughter, her birthday is coming up. And um, in the old days, we would, you know, go visit a store and she can browse through what she likes. And guess what she did this year? She went to Amazon. She created a wish list and say, here you go, mommy. This is what I want. And um, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, I, I, I've, you know, our boys have looked at Amazon and they almost look at like sort of browsing the world. They're like, oh, look at all these like Legos that we could buy and look at all these different things that we could like. And, you know, that whole um, sort of way that children are being raised now has been transformed because, you know, they watch people play video games um, or, you know, they want to create YouTube videos themselves. And there's an interesting section in this book about YouTube videos and everything from preschoolers on up in the way that content is actually being auto-created to really tap into a two-year-old or a four-year-old or a 10-year-old's mind in order to get them to watch and watch and watch because that's the way it's monetized. And so algorithms not only recommend, but algorithms are creating content in order to get us sort of hooked into watching things over and over and to watch like things. 
And that's, you know, that, that's a little bit scary too when you think about the impact that it has on a brain that's being developed uh, in their first formative years. Yeah, the, the one thing that reminds me of what he said is uh, computation replaces conscious thoughts. And we think more and more like the machine or we don't think at all, right? So if, if we take a one step further to your point, when they are little and this is what they get exposed to, then my questions will be like simple things that we typically do as a natural human defense mechanism, you know, things that we would know how to do, how to react Let's take a very, very simple thing, phone numbers, right? 20 some years ago, before we had um, cell phones, smartphones, we always remember at least a set of phone numbers. That, that's just basic survival skill. We need something, we call. And we know who to call, we know where to call. Nowadays, the only phone number, two phone numbers I remember is mine and the house. And so God forbid, if, if my uh, battery phone battery died, I'm dead. I wouldn't know how to find directions because we don't do maps anymore. I wouldn't know how to call people. I wouldn't know exactly why I need to be because my calendar and everything literally my whole life exists on my phone. And my brain has been conditioned in a way that, oh yeah, those tasks, the quote unquote manual tasks, it's been relegated to the machines. And I feel like I lost a part of my basic skills. No, absolutely. I mean, he says, you know, we have an apparent inability to see clearly what is in front of us and to act meaningfully uh, with agency and justice as we travel through the world. And he gives examples of uh, people following maps, you know, to their death, whether it be driving into the desert and sort of going on a road that they shouldn't be going on, getting stuck and, and, you know, dying. (laughs) Uh, or, or driving into the ocean because that's where the map told them to go. And that's, you know, you need to look in front of yourself um, and be thoughtfully engaged in the technology that is sort of driving you in a particular place. Uh, we should not be on autopilot. You know, we, we need to leverage technology more thoughtfully uh, with as much vigilance and with empathy. And as we would... Um, if we were in front of people, right, and, and trying to explain to them directions or explain to them a, a concept, uh, don't just, you know, tell our children, go to Google and search it or ask Siri or ask Alexa. Um, let's actually work out together, you know, with our children how to understand something. Speaking of children, um, they... they <laughs> They are amazing. I think there's a lot we always learn from them. Um, my kids have gotten to the point where if they ask me a question, they, get, they literally give me like five seconds to respond. If I say, well, I'm not sure, next thing you know, one of them will be like, hey, Siri, and then they went on and on. They're like, mommy, you don't know. How about we just ask the machine? And part of me gets sad. It's like, wait a minute, what does that do to our person-to-person relationship? right? I I have no problem with us trying to find an answer from a machine, but at least I think the human interaction part of it, I feel like we probably are losing a little bit of what makes us human. Um, My son was applying the other day to be part of a tech um, support squad. I think they call it the tech squad um, in school, his fourth grade. And um, so he was writing his digital resume 
and answering questions about why he thinks he would be a good fit for the squad.、Um, and I looked at his answers. Every single one of them has to do with. Him talking about how good he is with coding, how good he is with technology, how comfortable he is with technology, and one piece that was missing was the fact that he also had good personal skills. It almost seems like for him, if this is something about technology, all he needs to focus on are the ones and zeros, and not so much so. And I asked him, I said, "In the end of the day, are you helping a machine figure out its problems, or are you helping a human? And if you are helping a woman, a, a person." A human being out with his or her problems, even though is a a troubleshooting with a machine, you still need interpersonal skills because in the end of the day, you're still interacting with a human. No, you're right. I mean, it's when when you think about the way that sort of children learn. If anything, I would say that you know a child's brain, sort of between you know near birth to Seven or eight, or or a little bit older, is probably the the greatest example of sort of algorithmic learning and computational ability、uh, because of the way that they take in knowledge. And if we disrupt that、um, sort of important and key piece in the way that knowledge is formed,、um, I think that's that's really something that that needs to be、um, sort of inherently. Challenged by parents,、uh, sort of continually in terms of the way that we look at technology and the way our children are being raised. One one of those arguments, though,、um, in in the way that we understand technology is that there's this call to increase our education around it, right? To understand、uh, technology, and we often hear, you know, well, just learn to code, just learn to code, and you know, my sons have played a lot of Minecraft, and they've you know been on、um, other types of platforms like Scratch, learning how to code. But it's it's not enough. We need to understand, you know, where those systems come from and and what they're really trying to do. And that's what we need to challenge as our our children are sort of learning how to use technology. Is what do you think it's doing?、Um, do you think that there are people behind this that are making decisions about what it means when you type in these type of words? And how do you think that you know different people that you meet in life would answer the same question?、Um, so I think it's. It's always about our own ability to understand the systems that we are part of on a daily basis, and really, you know, just simply, occasionally question the results and question the ramifications of those answers. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking. Information design and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. Absolutely. Just because you know you type something in Google and it. Gives you a response doesn't mean that it's always accurate, right? There's always two sides to a story.、Um, that's what we always tell people, and that's what we need to remind ourselves, especially when we interact with kids, because this is a completely whole new world that we didn't have before.、Um, there's something that in, in there he talked about something similar. He said precisely because these technologies interact with each other in unexpected and often strange ways, and because we're completely entangled with them. The understanding cannot be limited just to the practicalities of how things work. It must be extended to how things came to be, 
and how they continue to function in the world in ways that are often invisible and interwoven. What is required is not understanding, but literacy. And well, they I feel say, like that's, that's missing. In, yeah, in no, they, they, they always say that, you know, those who, who don't uh, remember history are doomed to repeat it. And I think it's the same way with technology. Um, the people that, you know, don't understand how technology is either impacting them or sort of changing the world around them are sort of doomed to be a slave to it. Um, there's, there's a lot of information in here that he kind of dives into about how biases are formed in technology and how um, sort of the these structural um, sort of impediments to an equal society that have existed for hundreds of years are easily embedded into technology. And that's why humans need to be involved in the way that these systems are viewed and the way that the answers are given or else biases will continue to be um, sort of indeliberately, but very, very prevalent within the systems that we use every single day. So, you know, our idea of um, fairness really needs to extend to our own technology and the way that we use it. Talking about bias, that's something that we often talk about in, in the use of technology, um, for example, things like AI um, or how it's being applied in financial services, right? There was a recent article um, about Equifax and wanting to use alternative data such as um, rent, paying, paying rent if they're paying on time, utilities bill and all of that as additional or supplementary data for financial institutions to um, justify whether or not they are going to lend money to certain consumers. Now, that's not new because that's what a lot of the startups have been doing, um, both both uh, here and also, you know, another guest of ours on the podcast um, over in Asia is, is using different means of data to service people that otherwise have a thin credit file that they would not have qualified for loans. Um, but I guess one thing that resonated with me that um, she has said is um, lending is is easy, right? Lending money to people is easy, but lending responsibly is hard. So how do we make sure that by doing this, by using technology to grab other means of data, to grab other types of data, to extend credit to consumers will not otherwise end up either providing service to someone that really doesn't have a means to repay and thereby increasing their debts and damaging their financial health. Or another case would have been, how do we make sure that we are not introducing bias in those set of new algorithms so that we are not um, unintentionally, let's just say, damaging somebody? Yeah, I, I, one of the, the points that he makes is that technology is not necessarily a leveling factor. You know, I, I like to be a proponent that, you know, technology and banking will one day drive us to complete financial inclusion. But the premise to that is that humans are involved in every step of the way. He says um, that technological opacity plus capitalist idolo uh, ideology will create an inequality the likes that the world has never seen. And again, the crux of that is the data that is underlying, that provides access um, to opportunity. And, you know, there was a, a study on inequality that just came out this week by the Gates Foundation and it talked about, you know, this idea of luck 
And so much of our lives are really driven from the opportunities from which we are born, you know, where we were born. And, you know, we can't control, again, the bias around where we were born or the opportunities in our first 20 years of life, no matter how much data we have, no matter how much we can actually say that our systems are going to help lift up people financially or otherwise, um, opportunities are created uh, and are controlled by an awful lot of our own bias. And so as we, we look into um, sort of the global financial ecosystem and how that's changing, and then we look at things like, you know, six platforms controlling a third of all economic activity, we should have a little bit of a concern and be actively involved in, in ensuring that there's a leveling factor in everything that we focus on. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's the same theme that, you know, many people have resonated and he articulated that in the book as well. It's about the story of the concentration of power in fewer hands and concentration of understanding in fewer heads. And the price of that, of this wider loss of power and understanding is ultimately not something that we would wish for, right? So in other words, the new dark age that he called. Yeah, I mean, he, he gives a lot of examples around um, sort of global surveillance and the fact that 99% of the data that is collected by, you know, closed caption television and sort of hoovered up by phone records and all of the data that is coming from sort of the, again, social platforms and monetary platforms that governments are collecting, 99% of that is completely useless. And, you know, this idea that more and more data will lead to better and better outcomes um, when algorithms are trained and start to communicate to each other on their own, you know, as, as things progress and technology progresses, if we don't understand what computers um, are doing, he actually adds um, a fourth law to Asimov's three laws around robots. And he says that we should have machines that are developed that are able to explain things to us, that are able to explain why they do what they do and explain how their algorithms work and explain how they communicate to one another. So this is what's really kind of interesting about how technology is developing is that we're starting to see programs talk to one another in language that they understand that we don't. And I don't know if everyone's aware of the fact that it's not, you know, that we're talking about singularity. We're simply talking about machines finding efficient ways to, again, share information to one another and how they learn things like, you know, playing a better game of chess than a human can or a game of Go. And, you know, when you go down that path where we don't understand what a machine or an algorithm really does, we just know that it somehow gets to a result that we seem to be okay with. That's a problem because the other three laws have to do with, you know, robots killing us and, you know, being in our best interest and those type of things. So we, you know, maybe we should be a little bit concerned about that. That reminds me of something I, I heard in uh, the Milken Conference back in the spring. Um, a speaker eloquently summarized it and said, we don't need a black box. Right now, algorithms function in big tech companies such as a, like a black box. What we need is a glass box. 
right? We need box, we need boundaries, we need rules, we need algorithms, but we need to be able to explain what's going on, like you say. Um, three things that, that should be a pillar for any implementation of such emerging technology is transparency, explainability, and reversibility. We need those to govern our use of technology, our implementation of technology. It's not so much so that a lot of these people are against technology, because honestly speaking, I don't think we can actually take tech out of our lives, and we shouldn't, right? Because it's doing good. There are a lot of good things that technology is doing for us that's allowing us to leapfrog and do a lot of things that we otherwise couldn't allow us to connect with one another when we are miles and miles apart, allow us to make discoveries in healthcare that improve human longevity and all of those good things that come with it. So it's not so much so tech is bad. It's not so much so AI is bad, it's going to kill us all. It's more so that what we do with it is what counts. It's our responsibility as an ecosystem to make sure that we drive it in the right direction. And that's what we need to be mindful of. Yeah, I mean, everything in our lives, again, is sort of embedded in what he's calling code space, which I think is really kind of interesting to think about it. You know, it, it makes me think of sort of the matrix and the fact that sort of this code is all around us, but in a way it is. And as we continue to embed technology into our refrigerators and into our devices that we talk to and into our cars and into sort of every physical space that we're in, what's important is that, you know, we step back. Uh, we step back and, and you know, we, we browse the world um, as, as we once did before our smartphone was embedded into our palm. Um, this, this idea that, that technology is complicit in some of these challenges that we face today, um, everything from what he, he says, the, the economic system that really uh, continues to widen this gap between rich and poor, uh, and he bases that on proximity trading uh, and frequency uh, trading that happens on Wall Street, to the collapse of both political and social um, sort of consensus. And, and when we think about, you know, the way that our opinions are formed about just about anything now, we, we tend to be driven by things that, that we're reading and things that we're diving into. And he talks an awful lot about how a lot of the conflicts that we have, social divisions and ethnic conflicts, a lot of these things in the way that we see the world are driven by the technology that we seek. And that technology just reinforces these tighter and tighter circles, which is, he, he devotes an entire chapter to conspiracies and sort of um, things that used to be on the fringe that are now very much like, you know, large groups of people think things like the world's flat. And even if it's, you know, 2% of the world, that's an awful lot of people. Yes, I know. Um, that was a, uh, it reminds me, um, that was an article, more like pictures, a series of pictures that were being shown on, um, I wanted to say it was quartz. Um, it was a photographer that took a lot of pictures of couples interacting or even friends interacting in real world where they were all holding their smartphones. And what he did then, he took those pictures and he created a series called Removed to remind people how strange our interaction has become when the electronic devices are edited out, they're removed. 
um, from these pictures. So you see visually, pictures says a thousand words, right? So it has pictures of, of couples. They're just holding up something. It's invisible. You can't see the film, but they all look gazed and, and staring into this emptiness. Or friends who are in the backyard barbecuing, they're all staring into the hands or uh, a bunch of people that, you know, are physically close together but yet they are actually not together. So it's a, a visual reminder of how technology could impact our lives if we are not careful. Yeah, I mean, if, if our sort of physical social lives are being impacted by this embedded um, sort of network and it's all around us and when we don't know something, we, we go to a device and, and type that in. Um, how will that change when it goes to voice and we have something embedded in our ear and half the time we're, you know, talking to someone, we could be listening to something else. Um, what happens when technology is even more pervasive? What happens when, you know, the walls of our house um, become a visualization um, through screens that are painted on and, you know, we're kind of in this back to the future sort of um, world that Michael J. Fox was, you know, surrounded by these, these large TVs and sort of perpetuating perpetuating this idea that um, you can never escape it. And that's, you know, that you don't very often see films that are focused on, you know, 50 or 100 years from now that aren't completely surrounded by technology, you know, from Blade Runner on to Minority Report and everything else. There's rarely something where there's no technology in sight, where, you know, everything that we do is not sort of connected. Um, so is there a way that we really think about what James Bridle says is the new dark age, how do we really paint a different future? Where, yeah, where's the hope? Where's the optimism? We should probably create something called a new hope. Um, but it, it reminds me of the movie Wally, um, which was fascinating because I think when it was out, a lot of those technologies that was depicted in the, um, in the, in the uh, movie actually wasn't available yet. Right, but it painted the pictures of a bunch of human beings living in a society where they are completely relying on machines to do everything for them, and all they do is they just sit around and be happy. Um, and I guess you know, to that, my question will be: Is that what we want our future to be? Right? What exactly do we want technology to do for us? How would we want to live out our lives in this planet, in this society? Um, and I would say to that end, put down your phone, put down your headset and go out, take a walk, spend time with your kids, go to an ice cream store or go to a bookstore and browse around and enjoy the day. Enjoy the human interaction without the phone, without anything around you, but just nature. So with that, thank you so much for listening in and hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs>